We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Good morning. Let's pray before we get into this scripture here. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son. And we pray, Lord, as we look at these scriptures that Peter wrote 2,000 years ago, Lord, that you would speak to us today, that it would be beyond conviction, that it would be beyond gaining information, that we would be transformed because of the power of your word and the power of your son's sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, 2,000 years ago since Peter wrote this letter, and in terms of sin, can we say that much has changed in the world? I mean, it's pretty similar. We were joking about uh, baptism also, which we're going to get into a little bit here when we're talking about this section of scripture, but it'll be a little cold, but I remember one year when we were doing a Footsteps of Paul pilgrimage, and we were in Thyatira, and people are in like thicker jackets, and then we had people that wanted to get baptized where Lydia got baptized right there, and I put my foot in. That was cold. So this is nothing. If I didn't have to wear a wetsuit then, I'm not going to have to wear a wetsuit this time. So we're good. Anyway, in reading these verses, it's challenging for Christians to fit into the world, isn't it? You know, sure we have our little pockets of Christian community where one can live apart from all of these lists of things that Peter wrote about sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. But let's also be honest about this in that some Christian communities invite this type of stuff into their circles. I went to a Christian university, and I know this firsthand. And I've been in Christian circles my entire life. I grew up in the church, and the same sin in the world can be found in the church. I mean, it can be found here. And so I can see why. I can see that people want to fit in. And so when I was working in the marketplace before I entered into the ministry, you know, I was a single man in San Francisco's financial district. Not that I was living in this. But living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and all these types of things that is mentioned here in 1 Peter, this is commonplace stuff. And it was really tempting for me to move into these areas of sin because of my flesh, and my flesh wants some of this stuff, and we want to be accepted that by the people that we're around because I want to be part of something. I want to fit into something. I want to be with my colleagues. And so here I was in my early, mid-20s, and I wanted to do as early and mid-20 folk want to do. It was a common thing for people just to kind of sleep around with one another, and if that wasn't the case, then you were on a conquest to do that which is also not okay just because you love somebody. Let's just get that out there first. You would look for stuff like this, and so they lived in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And when I told them 
that I don't do that because I'm a Christian. I always looked at like a weirdo. Like, what? Are you kidding me? And so you look at verse 4. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. It was surprising to them. And I didn't fit in as well as the others because I didn't have sex with the girls that I dated and I didn't get drunk or I didn't do the things that were just really normal for them to do. And so not that much has changed in terms of sinfulness from today back to Peter's day. And so how did Christians in Peter's day deal with this different way of living and how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that it's not something that we do out of our own flesh. The transformation we experience is something spiritual which changes our will, it changes our mind, it changes the way that we think. It's not simply a change of the things that we are doing or not doing. It's not some behavior modification thing that we're doing here. And so when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, he wrote, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So much of who we have been, who we are, and who we will be stems from our mind, our thinking, doesn't it? If we have a mindset, if we have the attitude that we're going to fail at something, we typically do. If we have the mindset, if we have the attitude that we're going to succeed at something, we typically do. When you talk to professional athletes, if you look at these interviews or these documentaries, or if you look at people who are experts in their field, most of the time they don't talk about training harder physically to get better. Most of the time when you're talking about it, they're talking about preparing their mind for success. And every professional athlete, every expert in their field is fully physically capable of doing what they do. What sets them apart is their thinking, is their mind, it's their conscience, it's their attitude that sets them apart. Now you look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And then on to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 here. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, we'll need to look back to chapter 3 just a little bit to understand what's going on in chapter 4 because you'll notice Peter wrote, since therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 4. It's in reference to what he has already written. So we'll be looking back to what Peter has written just a little bit, and we'll also be looking at some cross-references here. And first, we're going to start with Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, which I think ties well with baptism and what Peter has written to us here in verse 1 in this first phrase here. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, keep that in mind as we look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Let me read it from verse 3 to 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the way to life with God is death to sin. And we see this paradoxical thinking in Jesus. The way for him to be ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God was for him to descend to us. The way for us to have everlasting life with God is through death. It's by us reaching the end of ourselves that we truly reach the start of ourselves. And so you see these paradoxical types of things going on. And it's not until we reach a place of really desperate need that we find out how rich God's generosity and grace is. And so this is Romans 6. Previous to Romans 6, Paul wrote about the justification through faith, right? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Justification through faith, nothing else. And then he goes into Romans 6. Okay, And so Paul is making it clear that since we are justified through faith, not works, chapter 5, it doesn't mean we are free to sin as we please, chapter 6. It's like um, getting married because you guys have a really deep love for one another. And so to prove that you have this deep love for one another, one of the spouses chooses to have an adulterous affair to prove how deep their love is in their marriage because it's an opportunity for forgiveness. And it's an opportunity for love to be practiced to recover from that. That's just stupid. That's dumb. Who would do that? You love each other deeply, and the proof is you don't do that. That's the proof. Not that you go do that. And so it's similar to our relationship with Jesus. It makes no sense for Jesus to have died for our sins, for you just to turn around and sin as you please. It makes no sense. Now that's not to say that you become sinless. Because who's that? We don't become sinless. But there's a huge difference in one who is just habitually sinning, not caring about their sinful choices, and one who is really struggling with this and wanting to be free from it. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, we can't live with Christ unless we've died to sin. And so this is where baptism, that's a picture, that's an illustration of this, right? A death to self, right, buried in water, and you come out anew. And it's a picture of what has already happened to you internally. It's not that you become sinless. I wish, but it's not. 
it's that sin no longer enslaves you. It's in you. The sin nature is still in you, but it doesn't own you. And Peter and Paul are in complete agreement with this thinking. And so when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter wrote about unity with Jesus in his death. That by faith and baptism, we are united with Jesus. The, the death Jesus died became our death to sin. And the benefits from that death through Jesus was granted to us. Now there was life before Jesus, right? B.C., before Christ, and then there's life after Jesus, A.D., right? And so we use this terminology in our own lives. I don't know if younger generations do, but my generation and older generations, we used to say things like this, oh, that happened in my B.C. days. Do younger folks say that anymore? It's probably not millennial enough or something. But the scary thing is if you're saying that, oh, I did that in my B.C. days, and the sin is happening in your A.D. days, we got issues. There's problems. See, sometimes baptism is a mark that is right on or close to where these B.C. and A.D. eras separate, right? It's a mark. So that whenever you are in your A.D. days, but you're living in your B.C. life, you need to go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, and remind yourself, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Have you ever had a transformative change with Jesus in your life? Has that happened? Do you have a BC life and an AD life where you know there was a time in your life that you were without Jesus in your life and you know there was a time in your life that Jesus was in your life? Now, for some of you, this might be blurred, like for me, because I grew up in the church. And it's hard to kind of separate these types of things. But still, there was a time in my life where I decided for myself to be baptized and to publicly declare my loyalty and my allegiance to Jesus. And so there is that time for you. that You've decided that. And every day we have these opportunities to live like Jesus and to die to sin. Every day we're confronted with our old self and all that sin and the new self in Jesus. And there's always this temptation and there are always those tests that seem to creep up on us. Especially things that used to plague us in those B.C. days. Those things like to crawl up all the time. Now what are we to do at those times? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus, who lives and offers us life through his death, who is victorious over the grave. When everyone thought that he was dead, his power raised through weakness. Now you notice the word arm here. It says arm yourself. It's a proactive word. It's something that has to be done. It's not going to do it itself. You have an active role in this, right? You arm yourself. Now we have an alarm at our house. And you have to actively arm it and disarm it. It doesn't do it itself. Right? It has some beautiful English accented lady on there that welcomes me home. And it starts beeping at me. And I have to disarm it. And before I leave, I have to actively arm it. She doesn't even remind me. I have to do that. And if we don't arm it, it is useless. It's useless. It doesn't do anything. It's something that we have to do. Now, just like how we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as 
Jesus. We have to enter into the right things to make sure we are armed. We can't just enter anything and think that that's going to work. It doesn't. We need to enter the right code to arm the alarm. It's like the spouse who's tempted to bail on that covenant that they've made during marriage. And when you're tempted with those things, you have to arm yourself. Right? You have to do things like feel that wedding band. You know, sometimes when people get in that difficult situation, they start taking it off. It's a bad move. That's a really bad move. You need this thing so you can be like, yeah, I made that covenant. I feel it. It's right here. I made it. And this is a way of thinking, arming yourself. Right? You made that covenant vow, and your life is different from when you were not married. Because you are. And you can't turn back to those days when that ring was not on this finger. And it's like our Christian lives. When you became Christians, that's what you are now. You can't go back. You can't go back. In your baptism, when you symbolically died to your former self and you came out a new creation, when you declared allegiance and loyalty to God, that's it. No turning back. And that's Romans chapter 6. That's 1 Peter chapter 4. Now look at verse 2 here in 1 Peter chapter 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now why... Did Peter write this letter? It's in his letter as to why he wrote his letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's why he wrote this letter. We no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. No longer enslaved to the flesh and the things of the world. But then we have these questions like, but what is the will of God? I don't know the will of God. You do. It's in the scriptures. I'll show you one of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. For this is the will of God. <laughs> there you go. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now that's the start in knowing the will of God, to live holy lives. And your mind, your thinking, your conscience, your attitude has a lot to do with how you're going to live. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How we think. How we prepare our minds, how we train our conscience, how we hold our attitude is so important in how we live our lives. 
See, we tend to look at our actions more than we tend to look at how people think. And I think that's really short-sighted, extremely short-sighted. Because if you do that, all you have to do is look at how parents have parented their children. That they forced them to do action-oriented things, but they didn't teach them how to think. They didn't teach them how to prepare their minds. Or if you're a mentor to younger folks, or if you're a teacher to students, and you do all these types of things, and all you're about is changing their behavior without changing how they think, you're going to lose them. That's what's happening to the church today. We have kids coming in through children's ministry programs and youth ministry programs, and we have them remember, memorize all these Bible verses and say, like, oh, don't do that, and don't steal, and don't do that, and all that stuff. But once they get out of this kind of nest, and they go out to their own colleges, and what do they do? Whatever the heck they want to do. They don't have to follow you anymore. They don't have to do those types of behaviors anymore. So then their actions, they become their own actions, and so their thinking takes over their actions, and that's why they act the way they want to act. And so we need to teach them how to think. We need to prepare their minds, not just their physical actions and their physical bodies. It's not just bringing their physical bodies to church. It's bringing their mind to church and to think. Because people can fake those right actions until they don't have to fake anymore. You can force your kids to do certain actions until they get old enough to realize, I don't have to do that anymore. And you can force younger folks to do certain things until they realize, I don't have to do that anymore. Then they go off doing what they think is right for them. But then what were they armed with? What were they given? Chapter 4, verse 1 since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now this first thing, sensuality, what does this mean? This is talking about unbridled lust. Right? This is living without any sense of moral restraint, especially in regards to sexual immorality or violence. This is about having an excess of all kinds of evil. There's no personal restraint. Indulging your flesh shamelessly, violating any sense of public decency. Now, I'm not going to go through that whole list because I think you guys can define those sins yourself. I just wanted to go to that first one because I think this is the one that if you have this type of mindset that sensuality is fine, then everything else kind of flows behind it. All those other things, you let that go. If you have the attitude that sensuality kind of, you know, unbridled lust, like whatever, I do whatever, there's no personal restraint, there's no moral restraint, then everything else can follow really easily. And it's an attitude, it's a mindset, it's a way of thinking. And the thing is, not much has changed in 2,000 years. I mean, are we any better? Really? Have we got any better morally? Now, let's go to verse 4 here. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you. What does this mean? Some of you probably have experienced this yourself. Because you used to participate in that same flood of debauchery, but now that you don't, 
You don't do that anymore. Those who you used to do those things with, they're not speaking very highly of you, are they? They don't look at you upon the same way, right? So, for example, you know, you used to run your business in kind of a shady way. You weren't honest in the way you handled your taxes or you didn't do things the way that they were supposed to be done legally or ethically. You were working somewhere where you were just kind of skimming off the top and you weren't reporting things. Or you're in a service business where you're receiving cash and you're not reporting those cash tips or things like that. And you used to do things just not morally, not ethically, not legally. And then it changed for you because you repented. You repented and you, you saw the error of your ways. You saw the sin in the way you conducted your own business, in the way you did things. And then when you tried to make changes to that, you have people revile you because they're not used to the way that you're doing business now. You're like, hey, things changed. Why are you doing this to me? I, how come I can't get away with that anymore? Why you got to do that to me now? And they can't understand the changes. They can't understand why. Why is that? Because... Things are beyond just physical actions anymore. You've challenged their thinking. You've challenged their conscience. You've challenged their attitude. You've challenged their ethics, morals, values, beliefs. And so whenever you repent, you change from how you used to live, but they haven't. And they're going to malign you for doing the right thing. You've been having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You've been living with your partner. You know it's a sin. You know it's sinful. And so you want to do what's right. You want to do what's honorable before God. You want to repent and you don't want to do that anymore. Well, if it's only one of you, your partner's not going to be too happy. They're not going to like that. Your partner's probably going to think, well, you don't like me anymore. You're trying to break up with me. What is this? You, know, you don't want to do this. And you're probably going to get railed for that. And you'd think that your partner would thank you for doing what honors God, but you're greeted with contempt instead because you want to break away from that sin. And I just need to encourage you guys that if you're caught up in sin, it's time to repent. It's time to break free from that. You look at verse 3 here. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, it's been long enough. You've been doing that long enough. You've been living in that sin long enough. That stuff, it's in the past. How much longer do you need to live in sin? How much longer? Think about this. If you're in your 20s, a fourth of your life is gone. Have you ever thought about that? If you're in your 30s, more than a third of your life is gone. If you're in your 40s, half your life is gone. If you're in your 50s, you've just started life. No, I'm kidding. All right, let's go. But you get what I'm saying? Hasn't it been long enough? You've lived in darkness long enough. You think the living in darkness only happens today? You think that it's only present today, that we only have to go through these things? It's all throughout human history that we've lived like this. We're no better, we're no worse today than people in Peter's time when he wrote this in the first century. People have always lived in sin. Always. People have always lived in darkness. There's nothing new here. 
Same things mentioned in verse 3, right? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. This is nothing new. This is all the same stuff. It's the same all over the world, man. Jungles in Ecuador, refugee camps in Thailand, and these are just places that I've been personally. Rural areas, urban areas. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. Sex, materialism, idols, mind-altering substances, whether alcohol or drugs. Same stuff throughout all of human history. Then what? Then what? People that did that centuries ago, then what? What? What has it done for them? It's all been done. Anything we're doing now today, it's been done before. And so you live it up in your teens until your 60s or 70s even. Then what? You're not doing that in your 80s. I'm sorry, you're not doing that. (laughs) Maybe you need help doing that, but most of the time you're not doing that. No matter how long you've lived your life, you've been there long enough. And when you change your ways to follow Jesus, they will be surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they will malign you. Let me propose something else to you. Your friends and your family who know that you are a Christian probably expect that you would act differently than they do if they're non-Christians. They probably expect something. What's your testimony to them? This Thanksgiving, when you're around family, what is your testimony to them? Will they be surprised if you join them? Will they be surprised if you don't join them? What will they think? And so one of the things I think hurts Christians' testimonies really seriously is that they're no different than anyone else in the world. To just live whatever. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to go party out there with you and go on my conquest to see who I can sleep with tonight. There's no difference. The things you do, the way you talk, the way you think, is there any difference from someone who doesn't know Jesus? Are you caught in the same flood of debauchery? And perhaps that is why people don't malign you, because there's no difference. You call yourself a Christian, but there's no difference, so you don't face any of that stuff. And if those in the world aren't surprised by the way you live, it might be time to pause and ask yourself, why not? Why not? Because we're all going to give an account to God, everyone. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're all going to have to give an account to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Everyone will give an account to God. There's no escape from this. Now verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And this is talking about the people who have since died after the gospel was preached to them. Not those who have already died. Okay, and that's where I've landed. You may interpret this differently. This is where I've landed. Continuing on in that verse. That though judged in the flesh... The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So the gospel was preached. 
people responded to the truth of the gospel by receiving the gospel or rejecting the gospel. And those who have received the gospel, they eventually died and they went to meet Jesus as their Savior. And while those who rejected Jesus, they also eventually died and went to meet their judge rather than their Savior. For all who meet God with their Savior, Jesus, by their side, we will be welcomed into the presence of God as Jesus cleansed our sins from us with his death on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For those who meet God as their judge, they will be found guilty of their sins, eternally separated from the presence of God. That's what hell is. Eternal separation from God. And so some people may think like, oh, that's not bad. I don't want to be there. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want to be there. So you're separated. But you're also separated from love because God is love. You're also separated from forgiveness. You're separated from grace. You're separated from mercy. You're separated from all those good things that God has provided. It's not like you can pick and choose, right? It's not like a kid that says, like, I don't want to be with my parents anymore. Okay, then I guess you don't get food and you don't get shelter and you don't get all these other things either because that's who was providing that to you. It's the same thing with God. You can't just pick and choose. Like, oh, God, I just don't want you, but I want all the other stuff. Forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, all those kinds of things. I want those things, but I don't want you. It doesn't work that way. Peter wanted the readers of his letter to understand the weight of the gospel. That people will perish without it. And that people will find life in it. Where's your mind this morning? I know you're physically here, but where is your mind? How is your thinking? What's going on in your head? Where is your attitude toward Jesus? Toward the gospel in your life personally? Towards the gospel and sharing it with other people that don't know it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, as some of this may be convicting, because some of us are living in sin, Rather than being callous towards it, Lord, rather than turning a deaf ear to it, rather than ignoring it, I pray, Lord, that we would take action, that we would prepare our minds, that we would arm ourselves with your thinking as to how to change. More than just changing a behavior, more than just changing our action, but changing our mindset, our consciousness, our thinking, so that it is more long-term and affects us in not just what is happening now, but how we prepare ourselves moving into the future. I ask God that you would give courage to those who are in sin and to walk out of it. I pray that you would give grace and mercy to our church, not to judge or condemn folks, but to embrace them with a huge amount of love, a huge amount of grace, 
and resources to help them through what they're going through. In Jesus' name, amen.